Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another engaging episode of The Gold Standard with Alan Mosley. And here's your host, Alan Mosley. Engaging. Engaging. A couple of weeks ago, it was nefarious. And I <laughs> nefarious. thought, that's that's the end of us. But we're back to engaging. I, I can we're, do engaging. We're at engaging, yes. Yeah. Welcome back to The Gold Standard. I am your host, Alan Mosley. Guys, if you want to follow us on social media, facebook.com slash TGSAlanMosley. Twitter is at Alan M. Mosley. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. That's right. And really, you don't have to do any of that because you can just go to our website, which is thegoldstandardpodcast.com. Now, we had to get through that really fast because we have an awesome guest today. And you probably notice I haven't shaved because I can't let our guests steal all the thunder. I can't, yeah. So our guest today is the host of the Tom Woods Show, which is up to, what, 7, 18 million uh, episodes now, Tom? Is that <laughs> somewhere in that area? More or less. I don't know how you do five days a week, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, author of uh, many New York Times bestselling books, including Blake. Look, look, guys, I actually I read, and you can Impressive. see this now. I read. This is Real <laughs> Descent, a libertarian sets fire to the next card of law opinion, that also has to Alan Mosley right there. Wow. So I read and people know it. <laughs> so there you have it. Awesome. And many others. Tom Woods, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks. And and I actually forgot the best part of the introduction. You are the star of the 2010 cult classic Interview with a Zombie, which is probably That's, what you're best known for, I would say. That Interview with a Zombie has uh, served me so well over the years. It's a case of how you can use free social media to your advantage as a way of anticipating uh, attacks. The, the attacks hadn't even occurred yet. I had already lined up my response before they occurred because I'd written that book on nullification. Mm-hmm. And anytime you talk about the American states, well, everybody knows that you secretly favor slavery, even though you know, I can show all through American history that the states actually, in many cases, stood up for all kinds of good things, freedom of speech. Um, against unconstitutional searches and seizures, against the military draft, whatever. So I wanted to show there's actually a rich history here. It's not just cartoonish, states bad, federal government good. So I I did this interview with a zombie where my friend Bob Murphy dresses up as a zombie, and the premise is the zombie has his own television talk show where he interviews authors, but he can say only one word at a time. So whatever I say, he comes back with racism or slavery or a neo-confederate or whatever, and then he just recycles these. So it's exactly like what an interview in the mainstream media would be, except we're laughing at the zombie because it's funny. And so now what happened was when the book came out, and I did get some of those criticisms, in the comments section, everybody would be saying, hey, you zombie, leave Woods alone. What? Zombie? And everybody's linking to the video worked exactly as I planned. <laughs> now, little did we know that eight years later, we would actually see a recreation of this in real time with a rapper on Twitter. How, how could I you have know. predicted I mean, such I've things? I've been talking so much about that whole fiasco, but, but yeah, and so I keep linking to the zombie video. And One of these days, we're going to have to do a part two. Like Bob and I have been waiting for, what's the precise issue and moment to bring that zombie back? Because we'd get a lot of views if we did it right. And, we, and the thing is that the second time through, you'd be tempted to make it the production values better. I mean, the production was good, mm-hmm. but the makeup for the zombie, he looks like a raccoon. It's a terrible <laughs> getup. But that was part of the, the attraction. That was how low budget the thing was. So if he comes back looking like a real zombie, it would kind of spoil it. Now, he was definitely the shiniest chrome zombie that I've certainly ever seen. <laughs> now, now, first of all, you're, you're, you're killing me already because my, my 
we might as well knock this side off the bat. It was at the bottom of my list. We're putting it to the top. My question was going to be, are we ever going to get a sequel to Interview with a Zombie? And the reason why I asked is, is I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Not only should there be a sequel, but when I first saw that first video years ago, I thought, oh, this is going to be a series because it's too good to just be a standalone project that gets recycled. I've thought of that. The trouble is, I mean, I guess we don't have to keep ourselves to the zombie can say only one word at a time. But that constraint actually makes it a lot trickier than you think to apply it to other kinds of situations. But we have been talking about maybe doing it for certain, maybe to promote something that we're doing and that would get eyeballs on it. I mean, I don't know if that I would want to just generically do it for some issue. I'd want to do it because I did it as a book promo. And I would like to do it to get eyeballs on some project Bob and I are doing. So I could I could see bringing it back. I'd, I'd like to bring it back. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you this one for free, Tom. I had told some people, look, guys, if they're not going to do Interview with a Zombie, we're going to do it. And some people said, no, 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 that's stealing. you got to come up with your own thing. <laughs> and then, so I thought, so here's a, here's a different twist. If you don't want to do multiple episodes of Interview with a Zombie, change the zombie out for some sort of other Halloween-esque creature. So oh, how about how about chat with the devil's advocate okay that's not bad that's not bad yeah oh yeah 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 and so it could be a, a guy with horns yes. and a tail have, have like your al pacino he's wearing a suit and you know the whole thing yeah 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 but of course the idea of the devil's advocate is that that's a person who in a spirit of goodwill is throwing out counter arguments as a way of getting to the truth and i don't feel like that's what our opponents were really up to in this case well i liked the image of the zombie and by the way i actually bought one of the things i'm good at is i'm the king of domain names i find domain names that you would think surely somebody has taken and yet i grab them so one that I got – now, this one I can understand why it wasn't taken. But I actually bought interviewwithazombie.com, and that takes you to the video that we've been talking about. Then beneath it is the blooper video mm-hmm. showing all the times I could not get through it because I was <laughs> laughing so hard at Bob as the zombie. So I think that's actually funnier than the, the video we wound up going with. But it's amazing that's eight years ago. But yeah, everybody comes. Everybody talks about. It. And now, poor Bob. Here he is, a, a PhD economist from NYU, and people come up to him and say, "I loved you as the zombie." So he's sort of been typecast, unfortunately, in his career. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll call that side career, I guess. I mean, he definitely missed his calling. I think skit comedy was definitely Bob's calling. I'm Tom. I'm depressed now because we skipped right off the bat to one of my fun topics. I almost feel bad even asking you any serious questions at this yeah, point. That's a, what the heck? Well, okay. So I, this was a question that actually was given to me by my good friend Sherry Voluntary. I said, Sherry, I have I have to have something good to break the ice. Well, we've already done that, but I won't leave her hanging. She said, "Here's a good question. I've never heard Tom answer." So you've you've talked a number of times in your your talks and episodes you you came from the right you were more of traditional conservative right wing before you moved into the libertarian circle anarchist um so but you know once upon a time there was an 18 19 year old tom woods who was going off to school to get a history degree Mm. what what was that Tom Woods planning to do with his life? I mean, what? Because now, now I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. We hear all these advertisements for things like Praxis and, oh, schools, for that's for the birds. If you've got a good idea, go do it. But that's easy for us to say. It's, it's tough for a kid to make that decision. So right, what was 19-year-old no- Tom Woods going to do? 
Right. Well, I had no good ideas, so that was out. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, actually, when I tell you the answer, it's so mundane, you're going to be shocked. But I genuinely imagined myself as a math teacher in, in a high school. Did, now, now, Blake, did you hear that? Yeah. Wow. Math teacher. So, okay. That would okay. have just been a missed opportunity <laughs> if I had gone and done that. Now, but, <laughs> I have to say, I don't think I would have gotten anywhere near the nope. anarchist propaganda from any other math teacher, for sure. <laughs> and nor would you have guessed that that was my, where I was planning to go. But of course, when you're 18, it would not occur to you, well, someday I'll be a podcaster when such a thing did not even exist. And the idea that you'd be able to, you know, more or less make a living at it. It's just it's just very, very unusual. So uh, that was just not on my radar. And history wasn't even on my radar. It was I liked math because I was, you know, I was a nerdy kid and I liked puzzle solving. And really good math is like puzzle solving. Mm -hmm. So I, I really took to it. And I used to be in math competitions and I was on every year. I don't know if they still do it, but Penn State University every summer they have the all star. They have they, they basically take all star teams I was on the Eastern Massachusetts all-star math team, and we competed against states all over the country at Penn State. Uh, I was on that all-star team two years in a row. I mean, it was just ridiculous, the math that I did. And so I thought, what, I'm good, I, wanted, what I want to do for a living is something I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And one thing I was good at was explaining things that nobody could get. Sure. They'd sit in their math class, and their teacher would be yammering on, and they would say, you may as well be speaking Chinese. I don't know what you're telling me to do. And then I was that kid in high school. I was that tutor whom all the athletes would be brought to who were at risk of flunking off the team. And they would say, look, Woods, you've got to do some miracle here because we need Joe as quarterback or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I would sit down. We would do it. He would say to me, you know, if my teacher had just explained it this way, I would have gotten it. And I said, then maybe I should be a teacher. Maybe instead of just kind of fixing the mess left by other math teachers, what if I just get up there and explain it? <laughs> Because I, what I would do is, and this is how this is how it ties into what I do now. When I think about if I'm explaining something in economics that's a little complicated, like business cycles, you know, like the ups and downs of the economy, I think to myself, what do I wish they had? How do I wish they'd explained it to me the first time, so I would have understood it the first time? Let mm -hmm. me try and address all the areas where I think it's unclear, and that's what I did in math, and it worked. It really worked. And in fact, I even had a time. This is my. I actually wrote about this on my college essay, when you're applying to college, they want you to write, I don't know, I forget what the actual question was, but it was some kind of significant moment, something that you did that was significant. And I wasn't going to talk about, you know, well, I helped stop acid rain, because first of all, I hadn't. And secondly, even if I had tried, I would have had no effect on it. But on an individual life, I could have an effect. And I had a student brought to me, who was a couple years younger than I was, and she was just in all kinds of trouble. I mean, academic trouble, but also... Uh, emotional trouble. I mean, she was just going through all kinds of turmoil, like a lot of kids do at that age. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down with her to go to do math with her. And while I was explaining it to her, she's got a pin and she's carving things into the back of her hand. So it was wow. just, yeah, it was like, I'm never going to get through to this person. Mm -hmm. But I just carried on and I was as pleasant as I could be and explained things. And I wasn't sure I was getting anywhere. And then about a month later, I was at a school function and her parents came up to me and I introduced themselves and said, we want you to know that you have done wonders for our daughter. 
Uh, she, she speaks so highly of you. Her grades are much better. Her outlook is much better. And she attributes it a lot to you and your persistence and your attitude and your friendliness. I thought, whoa, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> That's pretty good. So you see why I would think maybe that is what I'm supposed to do for a living. Now, I'm almost sorry you're not a math teacher. I know, as I said. <laughs> so my, this whole time, I had my little follow-up question right here on the sheet of, so why history? But you're telling me that wasn't, that wasn't even on the radar yet. No, it really was not. I, and I, I just I kind of thought history was boring. Like most people think math is boring and history is interesting. I thought exactly the opposite. So it was that I got to college, and um, when I met the other math majors, I just thought, I don't think this is going to work out, because mm -hmm. they had no other interests at all. Yeah. All they did was math. All they did in their spare time was math or read about math. And I, I began to be unsure of myself if I could compete with people who never took a break, because I did want to learn about a lot. I genuinely wanted to be well-rounded. I wanted to know about um, – you know, uh, 18th and 19th century symphonies. I wanted to know about the literature of classical Greece. I wanted to know about all these things. And I also want to know math. And so I began to wonder, well, look at all these electives or look at all these uh, requirements I've taken in history so far. I was trying to get a lot of requirements out of the way so then I could enjoy myself. But then I realized, wait a minute, these would count toward my major if I was in history. And the whole rest of my career, I mean, at least half of it would be all a sea of electives. So mm -hmm. I began to salivate. And, oh, oh, think of all the things I could take. But I really also thought I had always been very interested in politics. I mean, not so much running for office and stuff, but the ideas behind politics, you know, the free market and that stuff. Yeah. And I thought as a math teacher, it's not really going to be part of the job description to be doing any of that stuff. But I could be engaged in the world of ideas if I were in history one way or another. And it was really that that got me thinking. I thought, you know, look, if, if I ever miss math, well, there's no law against getting a math book and doing some problems in your spare time. But if I were a math teacher, I would so miss being engaged in the mm -hmm. world of ideas that I don't think I could deal with it in the long run. So that's when I decided to jump off that train. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if uh, end of the exam word problems would have been quite a big enough outlet for Tom Woods to share his, share his ideas. Okay. Now – now, with all that, you had mentioned you had mentioned the book Nullification a little bit ago, and I actually had a question uh, that our good friend Mike Meharry had given me. He said, hey, 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 ask Tom this. This is a good one. Of course, Mike is with the Tenth Amendment Center. And I know. So if he has a question, it's going to be a doozy. It's it's going to be a doozy, and it's going to be about the Constitution. And I and I want to say really quick. Of course, I love Mike. You know, I I identify as an anarchist. I believe you would call yourself an anarchist. And I think Mike does these days too. And, and Mike does too. It's probably on the down. For Tenth Amendment Center purposes, well, well, we we will keep that between us. But this was his question, so you kind of already know where this is going. Is, okay. is is he wanted to figure out a way? Um, you've written a number of books that talk about the Constitution. Uh, you know, work within that framework. I actually also have this on the desk here as well. Who killed the Constitution? Co-authored mm -hmm. with Kevin Goodsman, who's also been on yep. the show. So oh, you would certainly be a guy who knows a thing or two about the U.S. Constitution, the ratifying conventions, the founding fathers. So coming from the perspective of an anarchist, and everyone who I just mentioned in that conversation is not 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 Kevin Goodsman, everyone else. How how does the Constitution fit into the liberty landscape, and how do you communicate that as an anarchist? in the liberty landscape. I mean, how, how do you write those trains of thought together 
in one community? All right. Well, I have a couple of different purposes in mind when I talk about the Constitution. I mean, one is purely as a historian. Mm-hmm. As a historian, regardless of what my own personal opinions are, if you're talking about U.S. history, you're going to have to reckon with the Constitution. So I genuinely am interested in trying to find out what did they intend to do with this thing. And then you, you, know, you dig through the ratifying conventions and, and you go from there. So that's the first thing. But the second thing would be then I, I want to reach constitutional conservatives and talk to them because I used to be one of them and I have a way of reaching them because I speak their language. Mm-hmm. And I know people who came from the left and they have a unique way of speaking to people on the left. And so they should go do that. Although sometimes I reach people on the left without even trying, but those must be uniquely open-minded people on the left is all I can say. Sure. So I think if, if I can show, uh, first of all, I get them to listen to me by saying, now look, here's what these three clauses, let's say general welfare, um, the so-called elastic clause or the necessary and proper clause and the commerce clause, here's what they were originally intended to mean. And now here's what's become of them. I get a lot of people cheering me on saying, yeah, that's right. We got to get back to the original meaning. But, but then I, I, I try and push them a little bit and say, but what are the prospects of that? And gee, they went out of their way to make clear. I mean, James Madison couldn't have been clearer in the things he said about the general welfare clause and that it does not mean, well, as long as you think it's for the general welfare, you can go ahead and do it. And he could not have been clearer about this. And yet that is more or less how any school kid thinks it's supposed to be interpreted. So maybe these pieces of paper can't really work as guarantees sure. in the long run. Maybe it's an illusion. And it's a, we have a false sense of security because there's this magical piece of paper. But what I'm here to say is there's no such thing as magic. All you have is a piece of paper. So I, I do believe that people who believe in strict construction of the Constitution, I believe historically their arguments are the better ones. Mm-hmm. And I believe that there have been, from the point of view of the Constitution itself, ridiculous Supreme Court decisions that make no sense. Uh, and, and I think I can point that out to people. But I use that. I then, once I then bring people into my fold who say, well, boy, this Woods, he sure knows what he's talking about with the Constitution. Then they start listening to the Tom Woods show. And they say, well, <laughs> it turns out there's a little bit more to this than just the Constitution, isn't there? Because I've talked about Lysander Spooner numerous sure. times and things of that, that sort. But, but I do think it serves a pedagogical function to say, uh, here's this very thing that they said. These are the rules the government established for themselves, and they won't even follow those rules. Maybe this tells us something about the institution itself. And then secondly, if you're going to tell me, well, we'll just get back to the Constitution – that sounds nice and everything, but what's the mechanism by which that could possibly happen? What interest group is there that's going to make a lot of money by getting back to the Constitution? There just isn't. I mean, you are fighting against every possible entrenched interest there is. Now, on the other hand, if you favor anarchism, well, it's even worse. Right? I mean, I, I will grant you that. But at least – but I think they're, they have an equal likelihood of being implemented. But mm-hmm. one of them, I think, is intellectually consistent and satisfying. And another one, I think, is based on an awful lot of wishful thinking that we could just get back. Well, why would we – why would we get back to the Constitution? The education is in the hands of people who despise what you, everything you stand for. You think that's going to produce people who want to get back to the Constitution? So – and plus, I just think in general – it's helpful to get people to ask further questions, to ask, to ask, is it really the case that, yeah, I sure don't like Nancy Pelosi, but we do need to have some Nancy, Nancy Pelosi's for at least the following four or five things. Yeah. But wouldn't it be really liberating to be able to say, 
what if we could run society without any Nancy Pelosi's whatsoever? I mean, doesn't that at least intrigue you enough to hear me out, you know, before you turn me off? Sure. So I don't know. I don't know if that, that all makes sense, but that's just what my stream of consciousness replies. No, it, it definitely does. And speaking of stream of consciousness, I, I've got like 17 more really abstract questions where I'm really asking you to answer for other people. So we love stream of consciousness here okay. on the Gold Standard. <laughs> okay. Now, and I, I try to give you shorter answers, but no, if no, I no, give no, no. shorter answers, you feel free to ask for elaboration. But as a podcast host myself, I know sometimes that sometimes the answer length is not quite right or your answer took up my whole episode. So I'll try and give medium to short answers. And if you want more, believe me, I got more. No, it's really good. Tom, the worst thing I do as a host is I go on random goat trails that are totally unrelated to the topics. And I'm going to do that right now. You know who one of the best guests I've had on the show is for giving clear, concise answers that were just chock full of information was your good friend Connor Boyack. Connor oh, Boyack. About that? Love that guy. Connor Boyack came on this show, and we had just had a couple of episodes in the row where that were like an hour and twenty minutes. And me and Blake were saying, "Nobody's going to watch an hour and twenty minute show. We got to we got to tighten this thing up. Let's shoot for like forty five. <laughs> Next week, Connor Boyack comes on the show, and I've got some pretty loaded questions, mind you, because I'm a terrible host, and so he's just going to have to deal with that. He just home run after home run after home run, and I'm sitting here thinking, I can't I can't absorb any more information. This is the best episode ever. Cut tape. It's 42 minutes. He put more information in 42 minutes than some other people that I'm going to leave unnamed did in an hour and a half. Easily. Uh, I I, I may have had some of those people on. <laughs> well, we, we won't name any names like Scott Horton. We won't name any of those people. But, but the thing is, Scott's <laughs> hour and a half is like other, you know, will give you a three-semester course yes. on some topic. <laughs> Absolutely true. So I, I, I want to transition, kind of keeping in line with, with our conversation. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about the the Kavanaugh appointment hearings, and and I, I really that's like that's not that's not worthy of this particular conversation. So my question isn't necessarily about his appointment; it's more just an abstract conservatism Supreme Court kind of question. You gotta have you have a guy like Kavanaugh. He's going to the appointment hearings. You know, he's a self styled conservative. He probably at some point in his career called himself a constitutionalist. He probably thinks he's an authority on the topic. How can it be? And I, and I don't know why I'm asking you. I should be asking Kavanaugh. How can it be that a guy who at least in his own mind, can be so strong on so many different aspects, you know, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, we're going to skip four, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, he could be so strong on, but can just be absolute garbage on something like the Fourth Amendment and government overreach and surveillance. I mean, how do you square, I mean, how does, how does, that, how does that square? I mean, how well, can... Well, I think the way he would answer that would be something along the lines of, if you want to protect the first, second... Well, nobody cares about the third these days, but all the other ones, how are you going to do it in a modern society, especially where we have enemies committed to our destruction? I mean, we can talk about a free society and, and uh, open society all we like, but if you have among you people who may be trying to form cells to carry out terror attacks, then you are going to have to give up some freedoms in order for us to track those people down. I mean, I think that I think that's the customary reply. And I don't think that, off, you know, let's say you had no pre, pre-existing libertarian background. If you heard somebody say that, you might say, well, that sounds about reasonable. I mean, we are going to have to make some sacrifices. How else are we going to track down these bad guys? But then you, then you look at what it is they're demanding. 
to be able to track down the bad guys. And then you look at their track record. They've tracked down like no bad guys at all. Or when they do track down a bad guy, it turns out he was an FBI informant in the first place. They accidentally <laughs> tracked down by mistake, you know. So yeah. or 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 they're they're um, now I suddenly I'm drawing a blank on the word. It's it's like they're entrapping people who yes. maybe weren't going to do anything other, anyway, but they get them all ginned up to go do something, yes. and then they arrest them for that. And then I'm supposed to feel safe because some guy who wasn't doing anything and then was excited and radicalized into doing something is now in jail. I don't know. The whole thing is. It's 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 all hat and no cattle, I think. Well, it's it. I mean, that that sort of con- connects into the next thing I was going to uh, ask about. It's probably more of a rant than a question. Which is, it seems to me that it's it's borderline impossible for people like you and I to sit down with the majority of Americans and have hours long, deep philosophical conversations about libertarianism. That's that's practically impossible. To, to have done. If, if I could do anything, it's that I would want to change the default switch of the public at large. It seems like the default stance is trust government in crisis. Because, of course, the state has never lied to us for, you know, the last couple of centuries. It, if I could change anything, it would be to change the default position to distrust until proven otherwise, not a default position of trust my elected representative or my Supreme Court nominee when he says, oh, but this is really important for security. So what can, what can we do to distill, you know, volumes of work on anarchy, libertarianism, free market economics, what have you, into just simply flipping the switch from natural trust to natural distrust? Okay, well, let me say, first of all, this is why I think that a stateless position has a kind of equilibrium to it that a minarchist position does not. Because in Mm -hmm. minarchism, you still have a state. So you have to spend all your time reminding people why that state needs to stay limited, even though they all have a vested interest in expanding it. Whereas if you had no state, and the idea of a state is foreign to you, and the idea is that everybody should interact with each other voluntarily, and then some guy comes along with a crown on his head and says, now, wait a minute, you're all going to pay me 20% of your income. Well, the default position is already against that because, mm-hmm. wait a minute, that's not how we run our lives in any other part of society. Why should we do this? That would be so anomalous to people that, the, again, that would naturally be distrust because this institution doesn't exist among them. So it seems to me that with minarchy, you've got to constantly educate people and educate them, remind them and remind them and remind them. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so how do we get to that? Um, I, I think – it can't just be that, uh, that we show where the state goes wrong because then you just keep on getting – if we just had the right people in charge, yeah. then it wouldn't go wrong. So one of the things that one, – one simple thing I would recommend actually is a book and not a book that I expect the whole public to, to read but for us to read and internalize it and learn the arguments because it, I think it will make us more effective. And that is a book called The Problem of Political Authority. And that's a, that's a terribly boring title, but it is an outstanding <laughs> book. It's by a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder named Michael Humer, H-U-E-M-E-R. And in that book, he's making a radical anti-state libertarian argument, but he's doing so without invoking natural rights. He's doing mm-hmm. so largely through a series of analogies. So, for instance, if you're, if you're out with your friends – and uh, you're out with 10 friends and nine of them think you should pay for the meal. Are you obligated to pay for the meal? But well, how is it suddenly magical and different? Is there some fairy dust that if there's a sure. ballot box involved, all of a sudden this is magically different and now you are compelled to pay for the meal? Well, 
at what's where's the step where that happens? Show me. So anyway, in other words, he, his book is just filled with examples drawn from from daily life where you're appealing to people's ordinary moral intuitions. You're not expecting them immediately to say, let's privatize the military. You're appealing to their normal, the way they act and the way they think in everyday life. And you make them realize, but wait a minute, it's true that I do think this way 99% of the time, but I'm always making an exception for these people. Maybe there's something screwy there. That's the thing. You get that burrow in their, in that burr in their uh, brains that then just kind of sits and festers and eats away. We don't want them to eat too much away. We just want to eat them strategically away in the brain at certain things. But that's, I think he has the kind of approach that's most likely to get people over that first hump where they'll now be willing to think further. I well, mean, certainly you're not going to argue agriculture subsidies. Well, sure. Well, we – you know, I had actually discussed this with Blake right before we went on. That the the analogy I used was is that now you might let a little white lie go here or there, but when it comes to your personal relationships, your your employees at a business, your coworkers, what have you, if if someone has just a marked pattern of constant falsehoods, falsehoods and deceptions, if not just outright destructive behavior, you know, you would divorce yourself from that individual. You'd say, this is not good for me personally, professionally, whatever the case may be. But it's just so frustrating that it seems like in the public consciousness, if there's any entity that absolutely meets the description I just gave, it's, it's the state or the American empire or whatever particular conversation yeah. you're having. But Boy, does does anybody else get more passes? Does anybody? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I I've given an example of uh, you, you, when you go shopping, let's say, and there's there's an item on the shelf that's not in mint condition, or mm-hmm. you know, there's a button that's slightly loose. You go up to that salesman, and I mean, I see people being complete <laughs> jerks to say, poor salesman, they're just the worst, the worst uh, position because they get yelled at all day long. Whereas you go through the TSA, there's a guy with a hand halfway down right here in your pants, and people are going, well, you know, he's just here to keep me safe. So yeah. they accept from him things they would ne- – or their employer is the person who gives them money. The government is the, is the person that takes their money away, and they're far angrier at their employer than they are at the government. And that's not normal. Wouldn't you think the guy taking the money you'd be angrier at? Yeah. Then the guy who's the one, the one person on earth who's actually making your standard of living better is the person you're upset at. It's completely upside down. And it, it really, the more I think about it, the more I think it, it is, it really, really, it's not just a libertarian talking point. The state really is a cult. It really is. Because how yes. else can you account for this kind of behavior and inculcating this kind of irrationality in people? It's a cult. Yeah. Well, and that's why they, you know, they got to inculcate in the kids from the beginning. Mm-hmm. They got to get them in those yellow vehicles, get them down to the uh, the um, reeducation camp, and get them saluting, and get them honoring, and get them get them understanding how a bill becomes a law before they even understand how a pencil gets made. Sure, they know how a bill becomes a law, and they know that that they have to stand up when this when the state's machinery of destruction walks in. They know they have to stand up and salute. And, and I could just go on and on and on. John McCain would be considered – would be a social pariah in any normal society, and he's held up as one to admire and to, as a life to emulate. That's a cult. 
Yeah, I, I think I have to pursue this theme further because it's it's getting so obvious to me now. No, you're you're exactly right. We've actually had that conversation on on the show at least once or twice before. That it it, it definitely. I mean, I, I feel like cold is an accurate word to use. I, I don't think that's an overstatement for for no other reason at all. That then that that again. No, there's there's little to no other facet of life that would get a free pass. I mean, you, you know, you, I, I, you know, I love history as well. I, you know, I have a degree in history, and you know, a, a lot of people, you know, they talk about well, you know, back during alcohol prohibition, you know, the 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 feds were were poisoning various chemicals so that if people were trying to create moonshine, they would poison themselves and and that sort of story. How could you possibly believe anything that comes out of anybody's mouth who represents that institution? If you know that happened for for all perpetuity, how could you possibly believe anything? Yeah, no kidding. And and then when you consider that the the outrages have been so much greater, in fact, you know it's hard to calculate a lot of these numbers about how many deaths there were in certain countries and mm-hmm. the hands of governments or or from war. I mean, you can you can make estimates based on. You know what? What were the what were the population figures before the war? What were the population figures after? And then you factor in births and deaths and whatever to try and figure it out. But whatever the number is for the 20th century, um, you know whether it's a hundred million people who died in, in in wars and totalitarian revolutions, who knows? But it's an astronomical figure. And Joe Sobrin once said, who he called himself the reluctant anarchist. He said, "Every bone in my body resists embracing the idea of anarchism." But he says, at the, by the, at the end of my life, I don't see what other position makes any sense. And he said, if the state is responsible for 100 million deaths in one century alone, how bad could anarchy be? Even before <laughs> you think through the logic of, well, how could you have competing services to provide different things sure. to people? Even before you've thought all that through, the, the presumption should be this can't be ideal. And he also said that one of the state's great victories is that – the word anarchy fills people with dread, while the word state does not. Sure. Well, I, wow. I, I, I want to switch gears because we're, we're starting to get a little bit short on time. There's one thing I wanted to ask you now. I got to see your talk down in New Orleans uh, right on the front end of the Libertarian Party convention. You were at the Mises Caucus event, the Take Human Action Bash, which was fantastic. Uh, it, it had its share of problems, but the people running the show did such an amazing job. Uh, a transmission failure, various scheduling conflicts, travel issues could not deter what was a fantastic event. Is really well done. Um, if there's one thing I never want to do on this show, it's get into a deep, long debate over what, who is and isn't a real libertarian, because that's just going to create so many problems. I, I, look, I'm still trying to get guests on this show, so I can't do that. Maybe someday in the future when I'm rich and famous, I will. But in your speech, you, you had said one thing that really stuck with me, which is I'm, you are going to go out on a limb and say, at a bare minimum, if you're going to call yourself a libertarian – you have to be anti-Fed and anti-war. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly what I was saying is that in the party, the party ought to at least commit itself to these rock-bottom principles because part of the purpose of the party has to be to fill in gaps that the other parties leave. It's not just that the other parties are wrong, mm-hmm. even though they are. It's that there are whole areas that don't even get raised. I mean, a lot of people mention what's happening in Yemen. You don't hear that from the Democrats or the Republicans. Sure. But the, the Libertarian Party ought to have a reputation for being the voice of the voiceless. 
And mm-hmm. so, so I, anyway, and, and the Fed is also not really talked about. So I was saying that for that party to, to be meaningful, it's got to at least talk about these things that aren't talked about. I mean, the, the Libertarian Party has never uh, hesitated to, to stand up for, as I say, marginalized causes. Well, these causes are really just anti-war and anti-Fed, and they are relegated to the margins of political conversation, if they even exist at all. Mm-hmm. So that is where we have to be. We should be known for those things, bare minimum, and then we can argue about the rest. Yeah. Well, I, I now I agree with that a hundred percent, and I I have been I've been pretty hard on the LP on this show. I'm I'm not a member of the LP. I can't imagine becoming a member of the LP. Hats off to the people that are, you know, good luck to them. That's not that's not really my bag. But I, I guess I guess one of the biggest things that concerns me, and, and before you hit me with, with the well, that's why we're trying to make change. My my biggest concern is is that you you view a, a valuable capital L libertarian party as as having a bedrock of at least those core principles. But I'm afraid that the party is not interested in having principles, they're interested in getting elected because that's what politicians want and that's what political parties do. They win elections. And I think I, I don't think winning elections is really is really realistic, but I'd like to think that being anti war is realistic. I'd like to think that. Well, I will say, even though you've already tried to yank that answer out from under me, <laughs> I, I, I will say that uh, you, know, you mentioned the Mises Caucus, which, by yes. the way, is not affiliated with the Mises Institute. But um, you know, I, I'm affiliated with the Mises Institute, and I um, support the Mises Caucus. They really are, uh, I think, uh, where a lot of the energy is in the party these days. I mean, they came from nothing; they didn't mm-hmm. exist, uh, you know, barely a year ago. And now they're, they're a serious force and growing all the time. And as you know, I did join the Libertarian Party, and I, I joined it because I thought, what the heck? Um, this has the name Libertarian in it, and maybe we could make it into something that when your friends who don't know anything about Libertarianism say, oh, you must be part of the Libertarian Party, I don't want to have to put my head in my hands anymore. <laughs> maybe I could, I could stand up tall and say, yep, you're darn right I belong to that party, and I'm proud of it. So I'd like to, to do that. So uh, Ron Paul said a funny thing in his remarks to the Mises Caucus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have an opportunity to speak to the libertarian wing of the libertarian party. <laughs> but it is growing. And, and, you know, there's been some cheap shots from the, the guy at the top against uh, me and people in the, the Mises Caucus. But, you know what, for me, that's just fuel. You know, he shouldn't be doing that. That's just fuel. It makes me work harder. So maybe maybe that's what he wants. He's just trying to bring out the best in Tom Woods. It could be that. But I say why not? Because Also because it's enjoyable. I mean, some of the things associated with being a third party are not enjoyable. Uh, petition drive, signature drives for ballot access and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And being in court. But I mean, you know, nobody likes that. And there are all these. I think that was kind of what it was. It kind of reminded me of. When Ron Paul ran for president, I thought, here's this guy in his 70s who's, who's flying all over the country, who, even though he's in good physical condition, as we all knew, he still, he, he doesn't sleep well in hotels. So he was a wreck all the time. Yeah. And he's doing all this, not for his own benefit. How does this benefit him? He's being smeared in the press every single day. He's doing it for what he believes, and what he believes is so great. And then I would hear all these libertarians say, I love Ron Paul, but I don't vote. And I just thought... <laughs> All right, look, I get that you have your philosophical opposition to voting. I don't agree with it. But even if you did, make an exception here for this man who's busting his ass for you. 
That was kind of the way I thought about it. Well, likewise, I looked at these people in the Libertarian Party, and a lot of them are doing this thankless work. You know, there's that Feldman line about those, get those petitions signed in the rain, Libertarian. I thought, geez, yeah. all these people have been busting their rears for all these years, and I, I want to support them. I want to help. I want to be part of that. So, you know, so anyway, I, that's why I'm – and also it's, it is a way to reach people. It's another way to reach people. There's, it's a lot of opportunities to get the message out uh, in that arena, and I, I have not – and I've asked on my show numerous times people who are against politics. And I, look, I don't like politics either, but my question is how you, – you yourself said you can't even sit with people and talk to them about political <laughs> philosophy. No. So therefore, given that we admit they're not going to learn on their own, how are we ever going to get through their heads – if we're not out doing the one thing they do pay attention to, which is the occasional election. And so that's why I'm involved. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I totally agree with, with everything you said. I, I, I guess. So you want to join? I'll, I can say it's lp.org slash join is the link. <laughs> could, you, could you just wait like another five minutes and we're going to get to the link portion of the show where Tom Woods can, can list like 30 URLs because I know you got them. Give, us five, give me five more minutes, Tom. Give me five more minutes. We're going to get to that. I, I had to hit that iron while it was hot. Yes. I, I, I know. I, it's, you, I, I, I deserve to give you that one because I tried, I tried to yank your rebuttal away from you and you, and you did it to me anyway. <laughs> Now I will I will say this. You you mentioned that Ron Paul's remarks uh and on the recorded message there at the Taking Man Action Bash, and I enjoyed it and everybody there did, I know I know for a fact. Uh when when Scott Horton was last on the show, of course he was there and he spoke at that event as well. Uh he had made the comment that I think that the only mistake that the Mises caucus has done thus far, strategically, is name themselves the Mises Caucus. They should have just called themselves the Libertarian Caucus. They should have just went right out and just said, "Oh, we're the Liberty Caucus, so if you're about liberty, you should join our, us." That that was that was Scott's strategic advice to them. What do you say about that? Yeah, I I, I think it's uh, it's time we reclaim Mises. Uh, I, I think that I think the Mises name is is excellent, and the, he's he's somebody that in some not all but some circles they want to run away from Mises because he was so intransigent. And that's why you see so many libertarians that cannot talk enough about Hayek, 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 Hayek. Now, why is that? Yeah. You know, you read some of Hayek's stuff is, is fantastic. And some of it, you, you say, what is he? Why is he doing this? Whereas you don't see that with Mises at all. He's just hardcore and awesome all the time. So I want that name front and center, period. Sure. And secondly, the demonization of the Mises Institute is so preposterous and absurd mm-hmm. Um you know, and I've talked about this. You, you go to their summer conference for a week where they train students. That's where Bob Murphy, um, you know, he went through that, became an Austrian economist. What, you, if there are people who don't like Bob Murphy, then I'm sorry, you're just deranged. I mean, Bob is the best of the best. But you look at all, I mean, generations of Austrian economists have been trained through that program. And you look at it, what are they teaching? Division of labor, prices, money, monopoly, method. Uh, sure. Business cycles, interest rates, uh, competition, y- you know, economics. Or you go to their website, you go to their blog. What kind of post do you find in their blog? Well, agriculture subsidies are bad. Trade restrictions are bad. And, uh, you know, war is bad. I mean, yep, libertarian things. So there's this black legend around the Mises Institute that is created by people who have never gone to the website. A- absolute guarantee. Guaranteed, they don't even know there's a blog at the website, and so that 
and I know what, what Scott will come back with is, be that as it may, Tom, I know it's unfair what they've done at the Mises Institute, but why attract that baggage unnecessarily? Yeah. Well, in a way, it is a kind of signaling. I'm not going to speak for the founders. Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Are you dog-whistling, Tom? Are you dog-whistling? <laughs> if the name Mises has become toxic for you, then maybe you're not our natural constituency here. Yeah. Mises was a hero. And what they're trying to convey with this is specifically not just we want to be liberty libertarians, because there's already a radical caucus in the Libertarian Party. They already have that covered. It's that we want to make sure there's a specifically Austrian economics angle in there that's not excluded, but that's a, a major part of our messaging. And so who better? I mean, okay, the only modification I would accept is if they want to call themselves the Rothbard Caucus. Okay, but I will be a sport and a compromiser and say I'm perfectly happy with the Mises Caucus. Imagine my surprise that that would be your compromise. <laughs> but but let me let me say this. You know, we love the Mises Institute on this show. We've referenced a number of their articles. We've had a number of guys from the Mises Institute on the show. We'd love to have more. Boy, I'd love to have Lou Rockwell on the show. I haven't, but I have had Jeff Deist on the show. Oh, good. And and he said one of the one of the best li- the best one liners that have been said on on this program, which was. You know, liberty movements, I'm, I'm kind of all over that. What I want is for individuals to be successful libertarians. That's how you're going to teach people about libertarianism, yeah. is to be a successful libertarian. And as soon as he thought that, I immediately thought, man, what a raging fascist. Unbelievable. <laughs> Bringing his hate speech on this program. What a reasonable person draw yes. from that. <laughs> yeah. How dare you, sir, come on my program. Now, what does he mean by successful libertarian? Successful person who happens to be a libertarian or successful at promoting libertarianism? You could write for the New York Times. <laughs> that was well, good. I mean, which, which does he mean? <laughs> I mean? I'm genuinely wondering. Well, you know, we in that conversation, we had talked a lot about Harry Brown, and we had talked about the, the LP as it stands today. Because this, this conversation happened a, 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 maybe a week or two before – the the libertarian convention and all that down there in New Orleans and he was talking about you know the LP if they may have only had 100 members but you had a guy who was the poster child of the of the party who was a tall commanding presence who was just an was an unapologetic libertarian if harry brown was anything he was an unapologetic libertarian and yeah. I, you know, I'm sitting here today, you know, September 2018, and I got to say, for posterity's sake, I'm pretty sure no one's watching this video one, two, three, five years from now and saying, oh boy, he's a prophet. We got a bunch of libertarians elected. No, we probably didn't. But I tell you what, you can't go wrong with having a guy like that leading your movement. And we need a guy like that. So I think what Jeff was trying to say is, is that, well, be, be a Harry Brown. Be a guy who, who walks the walk and talks the talk and lives it in a successful personal career, and right. then we'll let the chips fall where they may. I mean, that's, a better, that's better than hoping for public education or votes or anything else. Yeah. He's a, he was a very, very impressive person in the way he presented himself. He was a gentleman. He was well-dressed. He was well-spoken. He was well-educated. He was prosperous and successful. Yes. And that is what we should be shooting for. And, and I get that not everybody, you know, we all have our different styles, and some people speak differently from how I speak, and I believe in letting a hundred flowers bloom. But at the same time, he, he commanded respect, that yes. guy. And not because he was a loudmouth. Quite to the contrary. He wasn't a particularly loud speaker. But he was effective. He was like a laser beam in the mm-hmm. way he argued and in the way he got to the, the root and the heart of 
whatever issue was before him. And I, uh, you know, once in a while in the libertarian movement, uh, as with any movement, by the way, let me just pause to say, sometimes people say, oh, the libertarian movement has, has got so many problems because of all the infighting. Yeah, okay, that's not unique to libertarianism. Marxism has that. The Democratic Party has that. The Republican Party has that. <laughs> you don't say. I refuse. I mean, I'm willing to admit when I've got a problem and our movement has a problem, but I'm not going to be lectured to uh, on that issue when that is just a universal feature of, of uh, you know, human life. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's true that we have all that to, uh, to contend with, but, but I, I guess I would say that um, I, I feel like that's the image I want to have. You know, yeah. I don't want to be the. I mean, because because what I come across a lot in the libertarian movement, and this is where I was, this is what I was driving at, is that even though I would find this in any other movement, it's true. But the thing is, I'm only in the libertarian movement, so it only bothers me in the libertarian movement. I do come across uh, envious losers. I do come across people who spend twelve day, twelve hours a day on Facebook having pointless arguments. Yeah, I come across that all the time. What have they done? What have they done? That's what I want to know. What have they done apart from having Facebook arguments? So, for example, there are people who criticize me for whatever it is. Okay, I'm a terrible person. I get it. But what I want to know is, apart from my being a terrible person, I mean, you're not going to save the world by exposing me as a terrible person, right? That's not, most people have no idea who Tom Woods is. It makes no difference. That, that does not contribute anything to mankind. So my question is, as a side given that your commitment is to spending your day attacking Tom Woods, what's your side project? Like, what are you working on on the side? Are you doing anything on the side? Because I actually helped to create a K-12 homeschool curriculum for libertarian parents. Where's your K-12 homeschool curriculum? And they take that as an unfair question. Why is that unfair? I busted my you-know-what <laughs> making that thing. Where is yours? Where's your project? What are you working on? What are you doing? I have hundreds of videos to train young people in, in history and government to teach them this stuff. Okay, I did, I did that. When there was a financial crisis, I wrote the book that got on the New York Times bestseller mm -hmm. list, the only one that had an Austrian perspective that said this is not the fault of capitalism. What were they doing other than arguing on Facebook? Do something. Yes. Get out there and contribute something right. to the movement other than, well, this guy, oh, no, he let this person on his podcast. <laughs> is that your argument? I featured somebody on my podcast that you don't like. That's, that's your contribution to libertarianism? That's what I mean. These people are losers. Or occasionally they'll even say, ha, 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 Woods hosts a cruise. Yeah, that must be a lot of fun. These yeah. people would slit the throats of their own grandmothers if they could host a cruise that earned them a profit. Okay, let's be, let's face it. So yeah, you know what? I have been successful, <laughs> but I, it's not in and of itself. I'd like to be successful. I'd like to win libertarianism so I can go be successful in some other field. I don't want you know. Like I'd like to do something. If I would pump gas if I could have a free society, but we don't. So I'm doing this. What yeah. are they doing? That's what I mean. I don't want envious losers who produce nothing, and man, do we have a, an abundance of those. Well, I, I wanted to be heard here first. It is, it is my dream to be a guest on the Tom Woods Show, yeah. and I hope the topic of that show is Alan's going to rant and name names and call people out, but then Tom will take all the heat for having had me on the show. 
that's that's the dream because then I get to this, get all my anger out and then you take the heat. That's perfect. That sounds like a great episode. It, it works for me, Tom. We're, we're we're coming to the end of it now, so I'm I'm just going to take a step back from the microphone and let you read off every link book. URL, social media account that you can possibly get out in however many breaths you feel like taking. <laughs> All right. Well, I think the best thing to do is to give only one so oh, that people okay. will just do the one thing. Okay. Um, and that would simply be tomsfreebooks.com. Okay. Because another thing I do is I give away books, and one of them, they're, they're electronic versions, but one of them called Bernie Sanders is Wrong is very, I mean, that's, that's a 150-page book. It's a real. It's not like one of these ten-page so-called e-books. It's a hundred fifty-page book on all the different sorts of topics he talks about and why he's wrong about every single one of them. That's valuable because that guy and his followers are here to stay, uh, and we've got to know how to answer them. So, so one of the books you'll find there is Bernie Sanders is wrong. There's a whole bunch where we look at the hard questions that people ask us, like, uh, well, what would we do with a free market in medicine? Which has to just be everybody be dying. Or what would we do with education? Everybody would just be an ignorant idiot worshiping Thor. What would what would happen? <laughs> so I've got ebooks on all those hard questions at tomsfreebooks.com. Tomsfreebooks.com. Yep. That that way you don't have anything else to remember. I wanted to say really quick, probably the thing that I loved about Harry Brown the most was that he spoke matter-of-factly. It wasn't, oh, I think that maybe if we could move a few inches this way, it'll get better. No, no, no. It is, this is how it is, and this is how it ought to be, full stop. Bernie Sanders is wrong fits right into the category of speaking matter-of-factly. So thank you, sir, for for being on the show. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I want to get you out of here on this one. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Oh, wow. Oh, my kids say it is. Your kids are right. Well done, sir. You are educating <laughs> wonderful children. No, I'm, I'm a big <laughs> failure because I'm trying to tell them it isn't. What? <laughs> what? Uh-oh. No. <laughs> Nobody says I'm going to a sandwich shop so I can have a hot dog. He does have a point. And nobody would say <laughs> the sandwich shop is incomplete because there's no hot dog. So right away, wouldn't the sandwich shops know what a sandwich is? Well, we're not even we're not even going to get into prom or the prom. So first of oh, all, where I am so right about that. <laughs> you know what? How You're dare you? To the prom. How dare you come to onto my show? <laughs> Tom, right. thank you this, so much this for is being degenerating. here. Degenerating. Yes. You could imagine. Well, it's 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 because I only want yes men to come on the show and validate my feelings, and you're hurting me, and so and so we got to go. But oh, Tom, man. thank you so very thank much for being so on much, the show. Tom. I can't I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Alan. Thanks for having. Me. Blake, do you have anything else? No, we're good. All right, there it is, guys. Really quick, Tom'sFreeBooks.com, where you can get eight million eBooks to go along with all the other great stuff that Tom has done, uh, his podcast, his many works. For us, it is Facebook.com slash TGS Alan Mosley, Twitter at Alan M. Mosley. You can find us on all your podcast platforms of choice and the goldstandardpodcast.com. See us next week.